0: Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from 2 Peter 1, verse 5, in the second part of a sermon series called Character Under Construction, with this message from May 26th titled, Doing Right.
1: Last Sunday, I began a sermon series from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, which I titled Character Under Construction. And I proposed that as followers of Jesus, we could hang a sign from our neck, which reads, Construction Zone. Although we are better than we once were, we are not yet what we ought to be. The truth of the matter is that we are at different stages in our spiritual growth and walk. And we're all in the process of becoming what Jesus wants us to become. The apostle Paul put it in this way. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I think Max Lucado expressed it well when he said, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. God desires to transform our character. He longs for our character to conform to the image of his son Jesus, which is really a lifelong process. Our character will continually be under construction on this side of eternity. And what exactly is character? Andy Stanley says a character God wants to develop in us was modeled by Jesus. As we allow Christ to live through us, our character will be conformed to his to abide in Christ we must think and act relationally not religiously we must focus on association not intimidate, not imitation and we must adopt the attitude that we cannot but Christ can through us last Sunday as we examined the first 5 verses of 2 Peter chapter 1 we unearthed two important truths that we need to build our life upon first god has given to us all the help we need To live the Christian life for his glory. Let me illustrate it in this way. Farmers and gardeners. You would expect a bountiful harvest. if all the growing conditions were ideal. In other words. If there was adequate sunlight. Adequate moisture. Adequate nutrients in the soil. You would expect a high yield of produce at harvest time. And in a similar way. Peter is telling us that all the conditions for our spiritual growth. Are at our disposal. Therefore, we have absolutely no excuse for not growing in our Christian life. The second truth that we unearthed from those first five verses was this. Because God has given us all things we need to live the Christian life for his glory. We must make every effort to be godly. Now again, let me illustrate it in this way. Although all the growing conditions may be ideal. Farmers and gardeners know that it still takes effort and work on their part in order to reap a bountiful harvest. Toil and hard work is necessary. An abundant harvest just doesn't happen automatically. And the same is true in the Christian life. However, we do not move forward in our own strength, but rather in the strength of the Holy Spirit. We need to cooperate with Him if we are to make spiritual progress. We concluded. That spiritual growth requires great effort and great cost and that there is no labor and no price too great in pursuing the God honoring life. So in light of that, Peter gives to us this challenge for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to stop and consider who wrote these words. The man who wrote these inspiring words, a man who exhorted us on to such a strength of character, didn't always live up to these same ideals. The man who called himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ was not there when Jesus was hanging on the cross. He was hiding in fear. The man who calls us to be eager to serve, remained seated while Jesus washed the disciples' feet. The man who tells us that we should be clear minded and self-controlled so that we can pray fell asleep while Jesus was sweating blood. The man who so boldly tells us submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority lopped off the soldier Malchus ear in the garden at the arrest of Jesus. The man who exhorts us to make every effort to supplement our faith with these godly qualities. Often challenged Jesus, spoke out of turn, and exercised little constraint. I don't mean to mention these things to demean Peter. Rather, the point is to give us hope. This man, Peter, who was so impulsive and so immature, grew into a man of great and outstanding character. The Peter that we read about in the four gospels became the Peter we read about in the book of Acts. And the Peter who wrote two epistles. It took time and effort, but God transformed him. This man who had denied Jesus at a critical time later in his life, suffered beatings, imprisonment, and eventually death rather than denied Jesus again. And the same Holy Spirit who worked this transformation in Peter's life is actively at work transforming those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. And it's amazing what God can do with a person who wants to grow spiritually and personally and who wants to develop character. The great news is that God wants you and I to grow as much as we can. He redeemed you and me for that very purpose. According to Peter, what qualities then are to define our character? Well, the first thing that Peter lists Is a characteristic or the quality of virtue. And I think it leads us to ask the question. What is virtue? And if I were to ask you. How would you define the word virtue? What would you say? How would you explain it? Translated from the Greek. This word means uncommon character. Worthy of praise. Or excellence of character. Exceptional civic virtue. This word denotes. Consummate excellence or merit. Within a special or social context. In other words, God wants us to be exemplary citizens, both of the kingdom of God and the society in which we live. We're called to be of highest moral character. But I think Peter is much more in mind than just being a thinking of just telling us to be a decent, respectable and moral person. The word virtue is related to the word virility, which carries the idea of manliness or courage and strength. When a man is said to be very virile, we get the idea that he's a man's man. He is courageous in the face of opposition. And in the Latin translation of the Bible, this word is used. But more than just meaning manliness or courage, it has a specific context. Virtue can be defined as moral courage. And Wycliffe translated it as moral excellence, while others have translated it as manly excellence or fortitude. So we get the idea that to be virtuous in the sense that Peter meant it, the Christian is not only to be looking to be a very moral person, a holy person, but he is also willing to stick to his guns in being holy. He will be courageous to do the right thing, regardless of the temptation to sin. And the pressures to conform to the world. Virtue includes characteristics such as goodness and nobility and dignity, modesty and purity, and all with the strength and resolve to stick to it. And implicit in the word virtue is the idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's one of the beatitudes. Jesus told his disciples and those who were with him at the time, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, that blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That blessed are they who are pure in heart. That blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So to be virtuous is to hunger after purity. J. Vernon McGee says virtue as Peter uses it has to do with excellence and courage. It means that you have the courage to excel in life. You don't have to live a little mousy life and be a yes man to everything that comes along. You can stand on your own two feet, state your position and be counted for God. We certainly need that kind of virtue in this hour in which we are living. And the only way we can get it is through the knowledge of Christ. This is a formula Peter is giving to us here. through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So Peter is exhorting us to have moral power, to have moral fiber, to have spiritual muscle. We're not to only talk the faith, but we're to walk the faith. Our faith is not just to be a mental concept in our mind. It is not to be only head knowledge. Rather, it needs to take deep root in our heart that drives us to moral excellence. We're to make every effort, Peter says, to possess an active faith. A dominating face of faith, a faith a forceful faith and a consequential faith. Peter says, don't compromise your faith. See that there is a bold and active quality to it. Your whole life should stand out and stand apart for the glory of God. Virtue or moral excellence then is a will to do what is right as God defines right, regardless of the cost. Men and women of virtue are willing to recognize that there is a standard of right and wrong outside of us that we must submit to. So to better help us understand the meaning of virtue, I point you to a man who exemplified this character quality. His name is Daniel, and his story is found in the book of the Bible in the Old Testament that bears his name. In the first chapter of Daniel, we read of a man stripped of every external support of his faith and identity in God. Few of us have ever or will ever face such a test. Daniel, though, emerges not only with his beliefs intact, but with a character that will shine God's light throughout his life. The historical background to his story is found in the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1. And we read in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. After soundly defeating the Egyptians in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar traveled southward through Syria and Palestine, defeating smaller nations like Judah. The assault on Jerusalem resulted in Jehoiakim's quick surrender and an agreement that Judah would be a vassal state. Nebuchadnezzar, after trampling Jerusalem underfoot, helped himself to the temple treasures. And he also selected a group of Judah's finest young men to be taken back to Babylon For his as private servants. And this is where Daniel enters the scene. He was chosen for deportation. And later in this chapter, he describes what happened when he arrived in his new home. In distant Babylon. We read then the king commanded Ashpenes, his chief eunuch to bring some of the young people of Israel. Both of the royal family and of the nobility. Youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the best that Judah had to offer as examples of his conquering power. They were to be youths, basically teenagers, physically fit, handsome, sharp of mind. And Daniel qualified. And so did Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. What was Nebuchadnezzar's objective here? His objective was total indoctrination. He wanted Daniel and his three companions to walk, talk, and think like Babylonians. So right away, they were probably made to study courses such as agriculture, architecture, astrology, astronomy, law, mathematics, and the difficult Akkadian language. And the royal diet assigned them was meant to strengthen them for the task. However, one commentator in the exposition of Daniel commentary points out that there was more to the meal than just nourishment. He writes all meals served at the King's table were feasts and among the heathen feasts were feasts in honor of the gods to share in such a feast was the equivalent of honoring such an idol admitting his claims and existence. And so practically denying the one true God what Nebuchadnezzar was intent on doing was replacing Daniel and his companions, Jewish values with Babylonian values. Everything familiar to them had been taken away their families, their homes, their religion. And according to the Jewish historian, Josephus, the Babylonians even made them eunuchs. However, the final blow came when they took away their identities Their God-given and God-honoring Hebrew names were replaced with pagan names that honored the Babylonian gods. We need to understand that in Hebrew culture, names were very important. They were given intentionally with great thought. And here, Daniel and his three companions now have their God-honoring Hebrew names replaced with pagan names that honored the Babylonian gods. We read in chapter one, verse seven, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Can you imagine a 14 or 15 year old boy living hundreds of miles away from his family, forced to study the difficult courses in a foreign language, Constantly bombarded by pagan philosophy and surrounded by the intimidating sights and sounds of the big city. It's not like our high school students going off to study at college. There was no going home for these four youths. There was no summer vacation, only day in, day out brainwashing in the ways of Babylonian culture, in the ways of the world. And no doubt it would have been quite a test of Daniel's beliefs. A test of his moral excellence and virtue. But Daniel not only handled the pressure, but exemplified moral courage in the hostile environment of Babylon. And I think he did so for several reasons. First, he had strong inner convictions. Listen to what the text says. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. That word resolve means to set upon one's heart or to make up one's mind. In other words, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself by eating unclean food. And notice that Daniel did not wait for the banquet to be spread before him before he decided what he would do. He made up his mind before he entered that banquet room. In the private chamber of his heart, he decided that he would not compromise. He may have been living in an unclean world, but he determined that he himself would remain clean. And so this is what he did. He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Daniel was sensitive to his supervisor's dilemma. And so he proposed a 10 day trial. And this is what he proposed. He said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. The let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food. Be observed by you and deal with your servants. According to what you see. You see with great wisdom, Daniel built a bridge of understanding between himself and his superior. But in the end, you notice that Daniel left the decision, the final say with his supervisor. And how could Daniel, this young teenager, stand up to his supervisor with such wisdom and tact? How was it that he could have such resolve? I think he had such resolve and, and thrived spiritually in that hostile culture. Simply for this reason, he was convinced that God was in control. Daniel believed that God was coordinating and directing the events of his life. According to Daniel chapter 1 verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar didn't conquer Jerusalem. Rather, it says the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And according to chapter 1, verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In other words, God was at work in the commander's heart, softening it toward Daniel. And later in Daniel chapter 1, verse 17, it says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Although these four boys were living in a distant land, separated from the temple, the center of Jewish worship, they were convinced that God had not abandoned them. His unseen hand was directing the course of events. He was actively involved in the thoughts and feelings of both Jew and non-Jew. He was changing attitudes. He was affecting decisions. And as a result, he was altering history. In fact, in Daniel's case, God made even his enemies to be at peace with him. Listen to verses 15 and 16. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God chose to honor Daniel with some very special talents and distinctions. The text goes on to say at the end of the time, When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year. Of King Cyrus. What is rather interesting is that Nebuchadnezzar had chosen Daniel and his companions to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate Babylonian power and supremacy. However, it was Daniel who outlived Nebuchadnezzar, and it was Daniel who outlived his successors and even the Babylonian Empire. Daniel lived until the days of Cyrus, the ruler of the Medes and Persians who had defeated and overthrown the Babylonian kingdom. But the point that cannot be overlooked in all of this is that Daniel stood by his principles and he trusted God. He was marked by virtue, moral excellence, and fortitude. He demonstrated remarkable courage to stand on the values and principles he embraced. He had resolved to stand firm against all odds and not to compromise that which was important to him. Charles Swindoll draws two key principles from the life of Daniel. He first of all says that inner conviction can overcome outer pressure. Why? Because the power of God is on our side. The key to tapping into that power is making up our minds like Daniel did well before he was tempted to compromise. His principles. The apostle Peter would agree with that. Remember, he told us we have everything we need to live a victorious Christian life, including the power of the Holy spirit who resides in us. But you and I must cooperate with the Holy spirit. We like Daniel need to resolve to stand up with courage in order to do the right thing. The second principle that Charles Wendell draws from Daniel's life is this. God-honoring convictions yield God-given rewards. He goes on to say, Daniel had no control over his circumstances or the people around him, but there was one thing he had power over, his reaction to these influences. Within that small circle of control, he chose to be a man of integrity and conviction, to honor God with his mind and body. And he let the Lord take care of the things in the larger circle, His superior, his education, his health, and his rewards in life. Again, the apostle Peter would agree. He assures us that if we clothe ourselves with these qualities, including virtue, we will be productive. We will live fruitful lives. All of us know what it's like to live in Babylon. Every one of us knows what it's like to live in this world that is in opposition to God. Every day we are confronted with idols of money, power, fame, leisure, pleasure. Every day we are tempted to worship those idols. Every day we are tempted to compromise our principles. Every day we are faced with choices. Will we compromise our convictions? Or we, will we courageously stand firm. How do we withstand such temptation? We develop in moral excellence. We grow in virtue. We foster fortitude. We set our hearts upon inner convictions, refusing to compromise. And in all of this, we trust the one who is able to keep us from falling. The one who is directing the affairs of this world. And so I ask this morning, what spiritual convictions do you need to embrace and foster in your spiritual life? As you look at developing moral fiber and, and moral excellence, courageously doing what is right. Are there areas in which you compromise? Are there areas in which you fall that you slide that you, that you excuse your behavior or justify your behavior? I would encourage you to allow the spirit of God to search your heart and to identify those areas in your life where there is a lack of moral excellence, where you lack that courage to stand up, to do the right thing and then to seek to the power of the Holy spirit to do that, which is right to live a life that exemplary such as Daniel's where he had strong inner convictions And chose to trust and trust himself to the one who controls the affairs of this world. I want to close with an illustration as shared in our daily bread a number of years ago. In the forests of Northern Europe and Asia lives a little animal called the ermine. Known for his snow white fur in the winter. He instinctively protects his white coat against anything that would soil it. Fur hunters take advantage of this unusual trait of the ermine. They don't set a snare to catch him, but instead they find his home, which is usually in the cleft of a rock or a hollow in an old tree. And they smear the entrance and the interior with grime. Then the hunters set their dogs loose to find and chase the ermine. The frightened animal flees toward home, but doesn't enter because of the filth. Rather than soil his white coat, he is trapped by the dogs, captured while preserving his purity. For the ermine, purity is more precious than life. In his first epistle, Peter called us to live lives that are holy. Lives that are pure. Lives that exemplify the grace of God. And he says, as you live such a life, you bring honor and glory to your heavenly father. And so I urge you this morning. I urge myself this morning to preserve virtue, to pursue moral excellence, to do so with courage, to do so with fortitude. Would you please bow as I pray? Heavenly Father, as we venture out of the sanctuary this morning, we are going to encounter temptation to compromise. To compromise our beliefs and our convictions, our biblical beliefs and biblical convictions. Father, we are going to be tempted to justify doing wrong, to excuse doing wrong, to overlook doing wrong. And yet you call us to live with conviction. You call us to trust you to live lives of of purity and holiness. And so I pray right now in the moment, in this moment of silence, that we'd resolve to be people of character, to be people of moral excellence, to be people of virtue. And when we are in those moments of temptation that your Holy spirit would bring to mind, the resolve, the commitment that we have made and that we would rely upon his power to overcome, to resist, to live victoriously. Father, thank you that you've given to us everything that we need to grow spiritually. And so I pray that we, through the power of your spirit would put in the necessary effort that we'd be diligent to grow so that you would be honored and you would be glorified for that is our highest ambition in life. We ask this in the name of Jesus.
0: Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.